Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, I think it is true to say that this life of ours is filled with turning points. I'm sure that as you reflect upon your life, especially if you're a little older, you will see that there are certain turning points in your life where perhaps you change direction or focus or intent. And I think that happens often. For example, when I was going to university, I thought at first I was going to be a lawyer. But then something happened, and instead of going the direction of studying law, I decided to study theology. As well, sometimes you have a boy and a girl going together for a number of years, but then at a certain point, they decide to break it off. They realize the relationship isn't going to work and isn't going to be there for what they call the long haul. Or sometimes as well, and that happens too, you're in a particular business and you're promoting a particular product, but then something happens. And all of a sudden you decide to shift and you decide either to sell a different product or maybe to go into another kind of business altogether. You see, life is filled with these points of turning, of change, that most of us can readily remember and identify. And you can say the same thing with the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Up until now, in the Gospel of Mark, he's been very busy teaching, teaching the people, doing miracles, taking care of the needs of those who are following him. But now here in this part, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, we see that things change. There is a, a kind of turning point. And now Jesus turns his face, not to the crowds, but he turns it to Jerusalem. And that really means he's now starting to talk much more about suffering, about what's going to happen with him as the days and the months add up. And so I would like to preach to you this morning on the following theme. Our Savior predicts his death and resurrection. And first of all, we're going to look at his startling teaching. And then we're going to look at his stern rebuke. And finally, his shocking comments. Now, beloved, when we turn, for example, to verse 31 of our text, it says there, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers and be killed and after three days rise again. If you think of it, and also if you look at it in context, this is very surprising and very stunning news. It's all about, all of a sudden, suffering. Jesus had hinted at this before, but now he starts to concentrate on this particular theme. And it's the kind of news that really rattles the disciples. And in a way, it's no wonder, because after all, this particular turning point comes right after Caesarea Philippi, and you may remember what happened there. There the Lord Jesus had asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they said, well, some of the people think you're John the Baptist, others think you're Elijah, or maybe you're one of the other prophets mentioned in the Old Testament. But then the Lord Jesus turns to them and, as it were, looks them directly in the eye and says and asks, who do you say that I am? And then you get that marvelous confession of Peter, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Now, we need to look at that confession or consider it for a moment. Notice Peter says, you are the Christ. And whenever we hear that word Christ, we are to think, of course, of the anointed one. 
And we right away think of that name in connection with saving terms or with theology. But, but really, we need to realize that in the days of the disciples, the word Christ, the name Christ, was so often identified with political and nationalistic themes. For example, there was a very popular book at that time called the Psalms of Solomon in which you find all kinds of statements. Behold, O Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, and gird him with strength that he might shatter unrighteous rulers, and that he may purge Jerusalem from nations that trample her down to destruction. He shall have the heathen nations to serve him under his yoke. And if you read that kind of thing, then you can understand where this emphasis on armies and the military and the political come from. So that word Christ, the anointed, was at that time so closely identified with these kind of things. And so that's what the disciples were thinking. You are the Christ, you're the anointed one, you're going to take care of, of the Romans and the invading armies. But now notice in our text, Jesus begins to say something different. He doesn't say, I am the Christ. He says, I am the Son of Man who must suffer. And that's a different title altogether. The Son of Man points back to Daniel 7 where there is someone mentioned who will be given authority and glory and sovereign power. Someone who's going to work out God's purposes. And now Christ says, I am the Son of Man. I'm not just the anointed one. Um, especially the Son of Man. And then he says about this Son of Man something unusual. He says, the Son of Man must suffer. Notice, he doesn't say he, he will suffer. No, he says he, he must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer. In other words, this is not something optional. No, this is something that he has to do, that he's compelled to do. This is tied in with his identity as to who he is. And so he speaks about suffering, first of all, about having to suffer. And notice thereafter, he speaks about being rejected, rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. In other words, he's going to be rejected, he says, by the people who are in positions of political authority and power. All of those who determine the course of the nation, of the country, those who call the shots, so to speak, is going to be rejected by them. The ruling body is going to turn their backs on him. And so that's bad news. But it doesn't stop there. It continues. For notice he says, be rejected and killed. The Son of Man must be killed. He must die. And that's probably the most shocking news of all. It's one thing to say that someone's going to suffer. But it's another thing to say that that person's going to suffer and die. And that's what Jesus predicts about himself. But of course that too is not the end of the story for the Lord Jesus adds something else. And that's really, certainly in the ears of the disciples, something unbelievable. For he says, and after three days, be raised or rise again. So first he goes into the depths, 
And now all of a sudden he goes into the heights. And, and you can almost imagine how that must have sounded to the disciples. I'm sure they didn't quite understand what he was getting at. And that's also why it says in verse 32, and he said this plainly. In other words, he made it as clear as he possibly could. The Son of Man is going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And he's going to rise. But the question is, did they, even after he told them plainly, did they understand that? There's every indication, not only here, but also in the rest of Mark's gospel. They didn't understand that. Some people would say, well, they had selective hearing. Well, that may be. But I think that this particular news, this particular turning point in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ was for them incomprehensible. That the Christ, that glorious figure, that anointed military figure, that the Son of Man of Daniel 7, that he is going to go through this kind of a thing? They just couldn't wrap their minds around that. Of course, we, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know much more than they did. And sometimes we also look down our long noses at the disciples and say, well, what's the matter with them? They should have gotten it. But you know, I think if we had been walking in their sandals, we would not have reacted any differently. We would not have taken the news any more readily. Probably for us too, it would have been in one ear and out the other ear. After all, we know as well, don't we, how to, how to listen very selectively. We do it all the time. In conversations, in listening to speeches, even in listening to sermons. We hear what we want to hear, and we don't hear what we don't really want to hear. That's us. That's them. That's people. But of course, notice as well that this is not the end of the story because it says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. In other words, Peter, and it's Peter once again who makes no bones of the fact that he is not going to tolerate any of this talk about suffering, rejection, about being killed, and even about this rising from the dead stuff. He's simply not going to accept that. This is unacceptable. We're not going down this road. So how does the Lord Jesus react to Peter? Does he take him aside? Does he calmly introduce the subject again, use different words, different expressions, try to get him to somehow understand? Or maybe does he soften the message altogether? Well, we see in our text nothing doing. As a matter of fact, listen to what the Lord Jesus says to Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind on the things not of God, but of man. Get behind me, Satan. So what does that mean? Has Satan or Peter suddenly morphed into the devil? Of course, it doesn't mean that. But rather it means that Peter 
Peter is now voicing the sentiments of the devil instead of the witness of one of his disciples. Satan is using Peter. He's using his mind, using his emotions, working through him, trying to derail the Christ. For you see, the fact of the matter is that, that Satan would like nothing better for Jesus to have adopted that political nationalistic agenda. Let him go and butt his head against the Romans. Let him go out of his way to raise an army and to train them and to equip them and to lead them. There's perhaps no better way to sidetrack the Christ than to get him involved in politics or in one or other military adventure. It'll spell the end of any attempts to save, to redeem, to forgive, to reconcile and to restore his people. It'll cause all the prophecies of the Old Testament to be rendered a swift death. It'll put an end to the cross. What Peter doesn't seem to realize is that his personal agenda is more in keeping with the will of the devil than the will of God. And you know, that's a warning. That's a warning for Peter. It's a warning for the other disciples. It's a warning for us. We need to ask ourselves constantly, what is it that shapes our outlook today? Is it scripture or is it personal prejudice? You know, some people, when it comes to Jesus, are always busy doing a, a makeover for him. Sure, they want to embrace Jesus, but then they want to embrace Jesus as a special human kind of Savior or, or as, a, as a friendly Savior. In other words, don't give me any of this talk about Jesus as God or God and man or about Jesus as the judge or Jesus being the only way to God or Jesus as the absolute Lord. No, they want a, a sanitized, minimized, marketable, consumer-friendly, people-pleasing Savior. But that's not what we should be doing. We should presenting, be presenting Jesus as Scripture presents Him. And if there is something in Scripture about Him that we do not understand or maybe do not even appreciate, it's up to us to change our minds and our thinking, to swallow our pride, and to embrace the higher, deeper, richer wisdom of God. What we need is not a Jesus after our liking, but a Jesus who conforms in every respect to the Word and the will of God. And so, Peter, while we can understand his outburst, we must reject his outburst. And so must all the other disciples, because it is not according to the will of God. Yes, and that, beloved, brings us to the third part of our text, which you find beginning on page 34, where Jesus, after talking like this to his disciples and to Peter, suddenly turns his attention to the crowds. And what does he say to the crowds? Well, actually, there are two things he really wants to stress here, two things that are important. 
and to consequences that are important as well. The first thing that you can read about is called self-denial. Look at verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's important to realize what Jesus does not say. For example, he does not say you have to deny certain things, certain pastimes, certain pleasures in your life, certain toys. No, he's saying you have to deny yourself, your very own being, your desires, your own agenda, your own wants and priorities and ambitions. And in addition, he says this is not something that you do just for a little while. No, if you're going to follow me, you need to do this all the time. Not just before the Lord's Supper or in this time of Lent. No, you need to do it full time. Following Jesus means self-denial. And of course that, if you reflect upon it really, let's be honest, it goes against our, our grain especially in the time in which we're living today. Because, you know, this time in which we're living is very much a time of self-esteem, self-enjoyment, self-promotion, self-pleasure, self-affirmation. More than one Christian counselor has said that the reigning disease of the 21st as well as the 20th century is the worship of self. For the advancement of self, we will do almost anything. To advance ourself, we will ditch our spouse, we will reject our children, we will quit our jobs, we will turn our backs on our responsibilities and our duties. Self-worship is the dominant cult today. We see it in all that talk about sexuality and gender, and you name it. It's all about the promotion of self. And you know, sometimes as churches, we aid and abet this trend as well. You know, if we promote Christianity, for example, as a religion of self-fulfillment, and if we always tailor our messages to cater to the comfort and the pleasure zones of people, if we soft pedal our witness to make it more digestible, what are we really doing? There's a book that appeared some years ago, written by Neil Postman, called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he says, I believe I'm not mistaken, he writes, in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it's delivered as easy and amusing, it's another kind of religion altogether. You see, following Jesus, Jesus himself says, is first a matter of denying yourself. 
But then notice as well, he adds something to this because there is a second part, and that's what we call cross-bearing. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Of course, we are all familiar with crosses, right? We, we see them, we, we wear them, we often have them in our homes or on our churches, even on our Bibles. And, you know, there's nothing wrong about that in and of itself, as long as we don't forget what the cross really represents. You know, it's not something, for example, to wave around like a good luck charm. Albert Camus, the French author in his book, The Stranger, tells about a priest who, who's trying to convince an unbeliever about the faith and, and who opens a drawer and he takes out a silver cross and he's constantly waving it around as if somehow that action will translate into faith and belief. But of course, it's a useless exercise. And at the same time, a cross also must not become for us little more than a fashion accessory, a piece of jewelry that somehow completes our outfit. Some people wear a cross like a soldier wears a medal. And other people, when they hear the word cross, they think of some personal burden or disappointment or problem or health issue or relational issue. I'm bearing the cross every day, they say. Well, the fact of the matter is that the cross that Jesus is talking about is not the cross of superstition or of fashion or even of personal difficulties. No, this is the cross as an execution stake. It's the great danger that comes to those who do the will of Christ. It's the willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It's the determination to follow this Savior no matter where he leads in spite of the cost. Crucified people, someone has said, have three distinctive marks. Crucified people, it says, number one, they always face in the one direction. And two, they never turn back. And three, they no longer have plans of their own. They're always following the plan of Christ. Now, some people, of course, are not prepared to do that. They would much rather opt for the easy life, the life of compromise and accommodation, the life of ease and luxury, the life of least resistance but you know, Jesus warns us very strongly about that kind of life and the results that it will bring. Notice he says in verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul. What's the Lord Jesus saying there? Well, he's saying, you could say, that losers are keepers, and keepers 
are losers. In other words, those who want to keep and gain in this life will ultimately lose it. And those who are prepared to lose now, today, will end up being keepers and gainers. He's saying, go ahead. Consider yourself, number one, save yourself, pamper yourself, live and love yourself. But count the cost. In the end, all who live for now and for themselves will lose big time and eternally. In a book that I was reading in connection with this sermon, I came across the famous story of the English writer William Somerset Maugham. Some of you may have heard of him or read some of his books. His nickname was Willie. That's what he was called by his family and friends. Now, as a result of his writings, Willie became really rich. And one day, his nephew Robin visited him. And Robin gives us the following account of what it was like. He says, I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that William's success had enabled him to acquire. I remember that villa itself and the wonderful garden I could see through the windows, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea worth well over 600,000 pounds. Well, he had 11 servants, including the cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera, he dined off silver plates. He was waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henri, his footman. But it no longer meant anything to him. The following afternoon, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible which had very large print. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across the quotation, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. But of course, it's all a lot of bunk. But the thought is quite interesting all the same. Robin Mohan goes on to describe an empty bitter old man who later fell into shrieking tears, crying out, go away, I'm not ready, I'm not dead yet, I'm not dead yet, I tell you. You see, W. Somerset Maugham, humanly speaking, gained the whole world, but in the process he had lost his soul. He was a keeper who ultimately became a loser. And so it is, the Lord Jesus says, it will be. But not just, he adds, not just with keepers, but also with deniers. For Jesus goes on to say, for whoever, in verse 36 or 38, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, Will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? 
If you are ashamed of Christ today, he will be ashamed of you tomorrow. If you will not stand up for him today, he will not stand up for you tomorrow. In other words, deny him, and he will deny you. But on the other hand, defend him, honor him, proclaim him, and something utterly different will happen to you. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now what does that mean? Does it mean that some of the disciples will not die until Christ returns? Or does it mean that some of them are promised an extra, extra long life? No, it's the promise that some of them will get to see the kingdom of God come with power. And when is that? Well, the first evidence of this power is when Jesus Christ is crucified in powerlessness, on the cross, in the crucifixion. Because, you know, that's really where the kingdom of God starts to break through. Where we see not the power of man, but the power of God. And so, beloved, in light of all of this, what is our, our calling even today? Surely it's to be busy today with the things of God. To deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow him. For if we do, if we truly do, even though we may lose in this life, we will win in the life to come. We shall live to see the kingdom of God come not just power, but with final, glorious, unimaginable, all-consuming power. We shall also live to enjoy it forever, thanks to the great work of Jesus Christ, who suffered, was rejected, died, but rose again. Beloved, be willing to lose it all in order to gain it all. Amen.